All right, let's do it. So action for the editors. Welcome to another episode of Honey Never Sleeps, um, where we talk to movers and shakers in sales, marketing, and just business in general. Uh, today, I'm really excited to be joined by Vincent from Kinto, who's been leading the go-to-market strategy for them for Southeast Asia. Uh, so welcome, Vincent, to Honey Never Sleeps, and why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, thank you, Ben, for having me. So hello, everyone. My name is Vincent Garcia. I am the business product manager for a SaaS company called Kintone Southeast Asia, as well as the owner of a business providing consulting services relating to global product management, product marketing, and digital transformation. But I'm actually from New Jersey in the United States, but I've been living and working in Japan now for the past 10 years or so. So uh, there I've built a career mainly in product management, product marketing, ranging from small Japanese startups to large multinational corporation so good to be here ben thank you yeah well you've got quite a uh a variety of different skill sets there and um obviously you've been working with kintone for a while and in, in japan for for 10 years so uh tell us a little bit about kintone and um uh, what exactly you you sort of do there sure so uh first let, let me just give you a little bit of background about the company itself so Kintone Southeast Asia is based in Malaysia, and we actually just established it as a subsidiary a few months ago. And it's a subsidiary of a company called Saibozu Incorporated, uh, which is the largest provider of groupware and collaboration software in Japan. So Saibozu actually provides different types of groupware products, but the main product that we're pushing towards the global market is Kintone. So uh, if I talk about what Kintone is itself is, uh, simply put, it's a B2B SaaS tool that mm -hmm. essentially aims to eliminate the business challenge of efficiently and effectively implementing a customized digital solution that is usually aimed to optimize business operations. So uh, for Kinto, we aim to solve these issues through really two main capabilities, first being a digital workplace and second being an agile no-code app builder. So. Um, when you look at it in terms of those two aspects, as a digital workplace, Kintone centralizes your team's data, workflow, and communication all in a single cloud-based workspace, while as a no-code app builder, Kintone empowers anyone in the workforce, in any industry, in any department, to essentially improve their workflow via Kintone's drag-and-drop features, mm. and can essentially be utilized to build and deploy their own customized digital solutions within really just a matter of minutes. Okay. So, yeah, but you, I think you also asked, uh, what does that actually do at Kintone SEA? So, as I yeah. mentioned earlier, um, the BPM, or what's known as the business product manager, and that essentially means I'm in charge of overseeing the entire go-to-market strategy, as well as operations for Kintone across 11 different countries within the Southeast Asia region. So, that also includes South Korea and India as well. So I'm working with a completely remote team right now, which really consists of marketing, inside sales, partner sales, solution engineers, as well as customer support. Wow. So uh, uh, you've got quite a variety of team members um, covering what, a huge scope of markets. Um, you know, you, you mentioned obviously Southeast Asia and then South Korea and India. Uh, did this, the strategies that you've been implementing, did they sort of differentiate themselves? It was there a lot of difference between the regions? Um, 
or, or do you find yourself doing the same approach for each one? Right, right. So actually, in terms of the actual approach itself, we adopt a very strong partner sales strategy. Mm-hmm. So what that means is instead of us trying to do everything as like a broadcast type of a strategy, doing the same thing across all the regions, mm-hmm. uh, we essentially leave it to our local partners located in each country. And we have about maybe one to two, sometimes even three different partners within each area. And that helps us to scale, but also have a localized strategy, even Mm. if we may not have any local staff in each of those regions. Okay. And that that makes sure that you've kind of got feet on or boots on the ground, even though you're not actually there, right? Um, Exactly. Exactly. uh, Let's kind of break down that partner approach because um, you know, there's a lot of SaaS companies out there that, you know, they jump straight into the direct. They're trying to take on so many markets in one go. Um, so I'm sure they're going to, they've got a lot to learn here. So can you break it down sort of fundamentally um, and what elements have really supported this being a successful uh, strategy? Right, right. So, yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned, yeah, when you're trying to attack the entire Southeast Asia region, there's so many different countries involved. And for us, mm-hmm. we essentially had to think about if there's 11 different countries, yet we have a very lean team. Um, and on top of that, the team that I was working at that time, everyone was mostly Japanese. I was actually the first uh, non-Japanese hire within the team itself and the wow. only native English speaker. So you can imagine how difficult it would be to try to actually create a localized strategy they're gonna lean on you exactly so lean team all leaning on me Mm. (laughs) essentially was the issue so the first thing that i had to do was looking at each of the different countries i had to think about what is going to be the priority of which markets we want to put more effort on and also more investment in but also thinking about what's possible with our current partners in each of those countries as well so as a result while i was looking at the market potential but also the readiness of our local partners for them to actually attack local customers. Uh, We essentially group the countries in terms of high, medium, and low priority, where for the high countries, we take a more push approach by providing our partners with local leads with their own marketing efforts. And then for the medium side, we took a more monitored approach, just kind of seeing if there's gonna be more potential to push them later in the future. Mm -hmm. And on the low side, we took a purely poll-based support approach. So whenever they needed something, that's only the time when we would actually approach them and provide any support that would be needed. Okay, so that allows your your lean team to have a, a, a real focus. Uh, that they're focused on markets whilst having the local vendor, uh, sorry, uh, partners in sort of those lower priority markets still keep uh, the, the business role and keeping business coming in. Um, and so you said you provide local leads um, for sort of your key key uh, markets. How does that help you? Uh, I guess, what's your approach to get leads? Um, and how do you educate these new markets about Kinto? You know, a no-code, low-code platform, that's a relatively new concept um, within uh, certainly, you know, the Malaysia, Singapore, uh, market. So yeah, t- tell us a little bit about that. Right. So just like what you said with no code, low code, it's a bit new to the Southeast Asia region. While mm-hmm. it's already very popular in the US and they, they even have terms like citizen development mm-hmm. and all those types of uh, kind of like no code, uh, essentially 
trends mm. that are very hot right now in the US. But in terms of Southeast Asia selling those types of products, it's very difficult to sell just by taking a traditional marketing approach mm-hmm. where you try creating awareness through ads or PR activities mm-hmm. and then going through and monitoring the usage of maybe free trial users. And then from this free trial users, trying to get them into an actual meeting with one of our partners is what we found is something difficult for us to do mm. because no code itself, the learning curve is a little bit high for okay. some of our customers. So what we found is better than trying to fo- focus on things that are on the top of the funnel, focusing on leads more towards the bottom side of the funnel instead, where okay. people are really feeling a specific pain point and attacking those pain points in order to get them introduced into no code and working very closely together with our partners who help them with the onboarding process of Kinto itself. So uh, in other words, selling a no code type of tool or something like Kintone is very difficult unless the customer actually experiences it for themselves. So traditional marketing approach is much more difficult and also takes a long time is what I found. So we focus more on the bottom side of the funnel, but in the real ideal situation, we would want our partners to just essentially do their own lead acquisition and close on the leads themselves. But and oftentimes, depending on the stage of the partner, if they're also learning how to sell Kintone itself, they might not have any experience or they might not even know how to approach leads in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that's why in our high priority approach, we're taking that push approach where we're providing them with leads and essentially forcing them to experience selling Kintone and then thus creating that snowball effect. Once they start selling more and more, then they get better and better and then eventually Ideally, we would want them to be able to become more independent in their own lead acquisition and also closing as well. I like that you're providing your partners leads because it's all about, it's, I wouldn't, I, you use the word forcing them to learn, but it's also motivating them with success. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're showing them that this is a product that can be sold. Um, you know, my sales career started in channel sales and, you know, I sold a, well, a, uh, computers essentially we were selling uh, uh, desktops and servers and we were competing with you know hp dell lenovo big brands that everybody trusted and understood and even though it's the same product um in that case we were trying to get our channel partners to sell us instead of um you know the hp dells and lenovos and um the way we found that it worked the most is incentivizing them and creating custom uh, opportunities for them, supporting them as much as possible. So it's great to hear that you've been um, using this motivational uh, approach. Um, and so you're you're obviously having to collaborate a lot with partners. Um, I have a I have a, an additional question: the reliance on partners. Um, you know, because that's a big part of your go-to-market strategy. Do you feel like you lack control of the success of your strategy? Yes, 100%. Uh, I think it's one of the drawbacks of going strongly on a partner strategy where, of mm. course, you'll have less control. Uh, I often feel sometimes myself, I wish I could just uh, more easily directly motivate the sales team 
to actually approach some of these leads or maybe some of them are stuck in the funnel. Maybe there's mm. a lack of communication after the leads we provided to the partners. We don't know what the current status is. So there are those types of issues. However, we take a very high touch approach with our partners where we essentially have uh, partner salespeople within my own team who are, you can think of them as account managers essentially, uh, where they're handling individual partners and they're dedicated to that partner's success, going so far as to providing them support on how to actually sell Kintel, but also they would be with them in the actual meetings themselves, providing guidance as necessary and providing any other feedback in order to improve their sales process on selling Kintel. I think too, you mentioned a little bit earlier when you're, we had your own experience trying to sell products when the partners are selling other products as well, trying to mm. incentivize that. I think that's a very good point as well. And I think something that we try to do and the reason why we have those dedicated uh, partner sales managers is we try to make Kintone as easy to sell as possible where we have that very high touch approach and that we provide excellent support not necessarily to only customers, but to our partners as well. And that's something very unique within Kintone and also Saibozu in general. Uh, when you look at Saibozu's business in Japan, it's mm. one of the very few companies that has a very strong partner business model where actually 70% of sales are all from partners and 30% is direct. So that's something that we try to adopt in really every single market that we go into Mm -hmm. because we found that it works really well and also it's very cost effective for us as well yeah because it allows you to have that leaner team that are specialists in certain fields right having to have quite a large team to do that ex the um the outbound activity to find uh business it's interesting that you the you know cybozu have got 70 30 percent even today and then you've spread that across all of your products and and, and regions that's obviously been a very effective model um whatever so you're incentivizing the team uh, your your partners by making things as easy to sell as possible i think that's really really important because it's very natural for us all to take the path of least resistance exactly. and you know when i was when i was channel sales we didn't just sell our own brand we also sold um a lot of uh parts and equipment like a distributor, and those were easier to sell. So our team would always sell those uh, beyond the the key brand that we were supposed to be selling. Um, And so if you make it an environment where, okay, this reseller's salespeople are going to earn, Mm -hmm. they're definitely going to lean towards that. And so your work, you mentioned um, earlier about the the overall team that you're working with. as I said, there's quite a variety of different departments and different specialities. Um, so obviously you're, you're implementing this strategy for 11 countries. Um, you've had to collaborate across multiple departments. What would you say, um, I guess, which team for you has been the most essential um, mm. to, to, your, to your success? Yeah, I think, I think it really depends uh, if I think about it in general, it really depends on the stage of where you're at in your business. Mm. Um, like if you're well-established business already with a lot of clientele, especially each of those 
aspects or different departments are going to be essential and critical to the long-term sustainability of the business. But mm -hmm. think about it in my specific case with Kintone, Southeast Asia. Uh, so we're in startup mode right now. So as I mentioned, we just started our subsidiary. So uh, yeah. we're, we have that very much real restriction of limited resources. So our scope is, again, focusing on the bottom of the funnel until closing. So since in that aspect of the sales funnel, which is our main scope and main focus, the key teams I'm mainly working with are marketing for lead acquisition, inside sales for lead qualification, and partner sales for closing. So really those three are the core. Mm -hmm. Although we, all, we do have customer success, uh, customer support, um, and we have other teams such as like uh, solution engineering, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the core team at the stage right now is going to be marketing inside sales, partner sales, I think for us. Yeah. So you've got to invest heavy on the marketing side, the uh, essentially for the inside sales and the partner sales, you've got to invest heavily in making things as easy to sell as possible, which was materials and, um, you know, basically all the, uh, what's the, the collaterals that your team and their teams would need. Um, and how do you measure your success? How do you know? Because again, you're out of control um, with your partners. How are you measuring success or how do your account managers get measured for their success? Right. So at the end of the day, it's just going to be about KPIs. So looking at the quantitative standpoint, yeah. um, we're looking at number of sales. Um, and also how are our conversion rates? Are they at an optimum level within the sales marketing funnel? So uh, for us, measuring successes, are we hitting our sales goals? Are those conver conversion rates at an optimum rate? And for us, really in the initial stages, focusing on sales is less means about revenue for us. Mm -hmm. It means more so the volume of contracts is our current KPI at this moment while we're in startup mode. Okay. So I guess it's not really about revenue or profit. It's about bringing in as many businesses as possible at the moment into Kinto. Right, right. Definitely in the startup stage, that is important, I think, to actually create proof and use cases and case studies of the product and that it works in the market. So that's how you prove product market fit, essentially. So yeah. If we can get to the point where we can talk to customers and say like, hey, at least you know, 2,000 customers in Malaysia are using Kintone, I think that has a lot of impact versus saying, oh yeah, we have XX amount of revenue. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that, certainly. And then, you know, based on what I understand about your product, then you can upsell and, and cross-sell um, once you've, you've got them, you know, in the business. Right, so, exactly. You know, you and I, we're, we're, uh, we're visitors to this part of the world. Um, me being from the UK, you being from the US. Um, and as we know, uh, Southeast Asia is a melting pot of cultures, um, people with, you know, very different beliefs and ways of working. Um, you said South Korea, India, and well, you know, Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, you know, just to name a few, the, these are all very different cultures. So um, have you encountered any hurdles in related to culture? Right, right. I think, yes, in terms of communication style in business. Uh, mm -hmm. If I just talk about internally with communication yeah. with my team itself. 
So again, me being the first native English speaker and also a non-Japanese person, thinking about it in terms of low context communication versus high context communication. So uh, kind of stereotypically what people say is in Japan, communication tends to be very high context, uh, meaning that things aren't very said explicitly, it's more implicit. So okay. it's much more uh, indirect versus with English speakers, especially in the UK and US, things tend to be much more explicit, very direct. So yeah. for me, communicating with sometimes members of my team, I ask them to do something, but they may feel it's a little too aggressive or it could be reversed where someone's suggesting me to do something. But for me, they didn't say it directly. So I kind of missed it. And then I didn't follow up on what it is that they asked me or what they expected me to do. So that kind of uh, cultural differences is something that I learned to be very careful of in Japan to always just kind of confirm wait so are you asking me to actually do this <laughs> something that i always had to do yeah um also may well for americans i guess we're less apologetic in the way we talk but yeah depending on different countries like maybe canadians for example stereotypically they say sorry a lot yeah <laughs> so, yeah so yeah that, i became a lot more apologetic in the way i say things as well just mm -hmm. to make sure there's like a cushion of you know, respect there. Um, yeah. I'm not being, I'm not trying to be rude or anything. I, I, um, I have a similar uh, feeling or, or, well, I've noticed it as well in Malaysia, obviously it's different to, to uh, Japan, um, but I can be quite aggressive without trying to uh, as well by being quite direct with how I speak or, um, in fact, I once, uh, uh, I guess a sidebar, I was in the Philippines um, working for a SaaS company and I met uh, one of the oligarch sons, um, you know, because there's like seven or eight families there that own pretty much everything. So if you want to do enterprise, you've got to go through them. Um, and uh, I know I was, uh, I was direct and I was just being myself. And um, weeks later, he met my CEO and said that uh, Ben is a bit too much for Asia. Uh, he said, a bit too much. And um, my boss, uh, uh, he said, I've got the right guy. <laughs> He's the man for the job. But no, I, I, I completely agree. We can be very direct and it can be taken across as, as aggressive. And so we've ha I've had to adjust how I communicate um, a lot uh, as well. Um, so that can definitely be a struggle. And, um, you know, obviously you've been there for 10 years. You, you sound like you've kind of, you know, with your cushioning, you've kind of figured out how to do things in Japan, um, at least with your your internal internal team. How about with your partners, you know, who could be, right, Indonesian, Malaysian, Filipino, Singaporean? Um, right. How has it worked there for you? Right. So I think in my experience with working with other countries in Southeast Asia, then it again becomes a little bit more on the direct side of things, okay. depending on, uh, at least in, com in comparison to Japan, I would say. So uh, my, I guess, American background kind of works towards an advantage on that. Mm -hmm. uh, however, the partner managers that I'm working with, they may be coming from, you know, traditional Japanese upbringing, where they're not used to that. So that's why the having local partners is very good for us. And uh, because they already understand the culture and they know how to 
attack the markets yeah. and, and the customers. But we also, because of language barriers as well, most of our partners until now have some sort of relationship with Japan. Either mm. they speak Japanese themselves or they're a Japanese company that is already abroad in Southeast Asia. So in terms of that, uh, as long as there is someone that is operating in the middle as a liaison, it tends to work. But if it's like a bigger company, then taking a, such a top-down approach won't work so well is what I found. Yeah. So you need to have a balanced bottom-up approach at the same time, which is why we actually started uh, expanding into SCA where we now have a branch in Thailand and we have a subsidiary in Malaysia where we're doing local hiring. Um, where essentially that staff there will be helping us maximize and, and improve our localized sales and marketing approach and also the support to the local partners as well. Yeah, um, that's, that's interesting. Uh, do you find that it, so obviously you're, you're building your local teams, um, but most of your partners what you've told me is have Japanese roots. Do you feel like that limits um, the type of partner you can work with? Um, has that held you back in any way? Yes and no. Um, I think conversely, because it's unique in the sense that they're Japanese partners, especially if it's a large Japanese company, uh, that might have multiple regions across SEA. It makes it very easy to scale yeah. uh, by using their resources because Saibosa has a very, very strong brand within Japan. And like what I mentioned before, it's known as uh, essentially the leader in group wear within yeah. Japan itself. So through that, it makes it much easier to make very high quality partnerships if a company has those Japanese roots. But like what you said, it can work as a barrier at the same time. Because maybe if we discover another another partner that might be really beneficial for us, but due to language barriers or lack of resources, we can't necessarily support that partnership. So mm. we have to say goodbye to it. Um, but that's something again that we're working on towards the midterm. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you know, you, there could be one of the best resellers in Malaysia not working with you right now because of that but sounds like you've got a plan already in place with that building up the local team um i think having because southeast asia has a lot of things going for it um i mean it's great that you're expanding here one of the reasons why i'm in this market is because you know we we implement and execute these strategies for our customers um and most of my customers are not in southeast asia but they want to be because of the growing emerging markets some of the fastest growing economies in the world um so it's, a, it's an exciting space of growth um and it's great that you're a part of it it's great for both of us uh, to be a part of it um and so look there's the, i've got you know we've got different people who are listen in um you know as i said sales marketing you know business leaders um so what would be your your biggest learnings from from implementing um this strategy and in fact i you're taking the the saibozu strategy from japan and you're you're repurposing and designing it for um, Southeast Asia. So, what's been your learnings from that as well? How much did you have to adapt? And, and yeah, what what's your biggest lessons? Right. So, um, 
to be honest, just because we're a Japanese company going abroad, um, I think that one thing was to not necessarily um, start completely anew, mm-hmm. but more so um, being open to new ideas, but also having the idea that our team is open to new ideas, not necessarily trying to do things that worked well in Japan um, mm-hmm. abroad. So uh, focusing more on having a strategy yeah. that is going as granular as possible. So uh, what works in one country may not work in another, but even more so going deeper than that, what may work in one city or one region within a country may not work in another. So something that we have done is look really deep into each country and understanding the customers and the market and the trends within each of those regions is one thing that I really learned from that. Um, it's good to still take a reference from what has worked really well in Japan, but still need to be critical of whether or not that's actually going to work. And you have to verify whether or not it will work in each of those countries is one of the biggest learnings that I had. Um, yeah. Other things that really come to mind is um, prioritization as well. So I talk a lot about the scarcity of resources that we have, but it's because it is like an actual daily issue that I need to think about all the time. When you're making a go-to-market strategy, you can think of tons of ideas and you can try and implement them all. But at the end of the day, if you have limited costs or limited team resources, think about not only what is possible, but what will actually create the most impact towards your strategic objectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Oh, no, I was just saying, um, kind of going to recap your thoughts there. So... Um, yes, bring your your strategies from other countries, but be open to new ideas. Um, I like that a lot. Um, some people can be a little bit close to this is how we do things. Um, for example, uh, you know, we won't we won't go to events, or we don't do webinars, or we don't do this, we don't do that. And a lot of people like to say we don't do this, we don't do. Um, and you've got to adapt, you've got to evolve. Um, it's great that you guys are excited to do new, new ideas. And I completely agree with you where one strategy can work in a city. But so take the, we did a lot of um, work in the UK and things in London yeah. would work really well. And then you try to apply that to the countryside or the smaller towns, which still have great businesses um, and even enterprise businesses there. Mm-hmm it just doesn't work um, because it's a different mindset, right? And um, utilizing your resources with those priorities, um, definitely critical because you can't do everything. I Sometimes I get a little bit excited. An idea pops in my head and I go to the marketing team, we're going to do this, let's do this. Um, And they're like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, okay, Ben, what do you want to let go of? (laughs) I'm like, no, no, we have to do everything. No, if you want to do this, you've got to let go of something else. Uh, So it's also good to have people that say no, right? Um, Before you get started, uh, what do you use to guide you to know what's going to make the most impact so that you can make priorities? Uh, I'm sure you'll probably say data, but is there anything you're looking at to to help you decide your priorities? Right. So number one would be, is it aligned with our actual strategic objectives themselves? Mm -hmm. So... Uh, one example is we, until now, actually, 
when we started doing Kintan Southeast Asia business, like maybe back 10 years ago, um, mm. we were focusing mainly on Japanese clientele within each of the Southeast Asian countries. And yeah. they worked well. Um, but now we got to a certain point where we had to make a local shift if we wanted to create a long-term sustainable business. So even though there are certain activities or ideas we may have, our team may have to maybe uh, use a certain amount of money to further get leads that would be great for Japanese clientele. At the end of the day, it wouldn't be the wisest use of our money because we're wanting to strategically shift towards local. So we're better off looking more midterm, long-term using that money towards building our local business. And the foundation yeah. for that is one example of that. I think a lot of people can get very short-sighted sometimes that, yeah, certainly, you know, I, obviously there are different reasons for that cash. Um, I've made a lot of short-sighted decisions building B Corp um in in many cases where you know cash has been key and i've had to make those decisions because you know we need the money to operate um so startups sometimes it's harder to make those longer term or mid-term investments um you know so i can end it like i like that you guys sort of got some quick wins you went for the short short term um wins getting those japanese uh local clients here because i mean you you've got the brand, you, you knock on the door and they answer, um, right? Uh, and now you've got some local use cases that you can then utilize for your longer term strategy, right? Um, yeah, so that it's a, it's a good way to approach. And I hope more business leaders try to avoid looking at the short term, I need leads now, or I need meetings and think about the quality and how they're going to approach those um, generating the right kind of business that is sustainable for the long term. Um, and I think for many startups too, they still go through that discovery process. Yeah. So what I would always recommend doing is instead of going 100% into that idea that you might have, mm -hmm. start small, just test it out a little bit and see from there if it's really worth it to move forward. And that's yeah. something that we do with, with uh, some of our ideas as well. Sometimes we'll try it out in one country first before rolling out to others. So, yeah. Especially in the context of Southeast Asia, if you're looking re as a region, try to start small, proving it, and then going to other different regions. And But then also because of the difference in cultures and business, you need to constantly have a feedback loop and see what works and what doesn't. Um, actually, one really cool... Uh, framework in Japan that's very popular is something called the PDCA cycle. Have you ever heard of it before? Uh, no, I haven't. So PDCA stands for Plan, Do, Check, Act. And this is a common framework that gained popularity in Japan, uh, I think through Toyota, actually, through their own lean manufacturing concept. So it's just the idea of this constant iterative process where you're doing planning, you're actually doing the actual idea that you have, you check it in terms of data and see if it's actually working. And then you act on based on that data that you've discovered or based on the results that you've been getting so far. So having that flexibility, constantly improving, I think is um, using that PDCA cycle has been very useful for our team as well. Yeah, plan, do, check, act. Right. And there's different, yeah. uh, different frameworks that are popular. Like I think in the US, the OODA loop is really popular as well. Mm -hmm. Observe, object, uh, I think, decide, act. 
as well. Okay, yeah, uh, it's good to, to follow these frameworks and, and obviously that trial and error approach. I mean, we try to A-B test as much as we can as well. Um, you know, and, and markets are different. For us, it's most of it is um, either how we speak, um, the local pain points and challenges, or the channels we're using. Fundamentally, um, I have a belief that human beings across the world from a business side are, are relatively the same. I can have good constructive conversations with anybody in the world. And, and that comes from sort of the global roles I've had in the past. Um, there obviously are some local cultural differences of how you should communicate. Um, but mostly you can work with anybody. You don't have to, you know, you can be a business anywhere in the world and you can work with anyone anywhere. Um, right, right, definitely. Yeah, and so like for us, uh, I mean, take Malaysia, um, WhatsApp is a massive channel. It's a personal app. We all know it's a personal app. Um, if I was using WhatsApp to reach out to leads in the UK, I'd get blocked, I'd get reported, people will right. be very upset. Um, I use it here, they're open to have uh, conversations. People cold WhatsApp me. Right. It's, right. it's crazy. I, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's such a different world for me to expect that. And then so we've adapted to use WhatsApp. Um, in the Philippines, they use Viber. Right. right. Uh, I think Thailand is Line. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, so there's, you know, all these different channels that you have to adapt to as well to be where your customers are. Um, and then you kind of figure out what's the right channel. So one thing we, we use data in a big way. Um, so let's say we're making cold calls. Um, if we're doing cold calling to a, to a, a target audience and we're getting sort of 5% connection rate, meaning we're only getting through to the lead 5% of the time, we need to do something else because it's just not effective um, because we're just burning time. And so we use that data to kind of direct the right kind of activity, the right kind of path that gets us conversations. Um, so plan, do, check, act, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting how you talk about the different channels that are popular within each country because like another popular one in the SaaS world is LinkedIn, right? Yeah. But LinkedIn is not as much used in Japan, actually. Mm. So... It's not, I, I rarely see even my colleagues on LinkedIn. So it's not one of those channels you might want to use, but Line is, well, originated in Japan and mm -hmm. it's a very popular platform, but it's more so used for actual, like just personal communication, not actual business. So yeah, it really restricts things, but in Japan, it tends to be more like TV, uh, commercials, etc. is the usual marketing uh, strategy for many <laughs> SaaS businesses here in Japan as well. TV and commercials, wow. Right. Um, YouTube. <laughs> YouTube as well, a lot, of, I, a lot of video consumption and yeah. TV consumption in Japan. Yeah. Um, I, I got a, a question I was thinking about because, you know, a lot of my career, I've been working with big companies, but I've never worked for big companies. Um, you know, I've, I worked for the largest company I ever worked for had about 300 employees. If you don't count my childhood job working in a supermarket chain, <laughs> and I don't, <laughs> um, and you work for obviously a very large organization. Um, and you're, you, you sound like it's very agile. You're, you're moving, in, into these new markets, you're able to change your strategy very easily, um, do new things. Um, do, you, do you find that, I guess, 
well, Kintone, Southeast Asia, or Saibuzu as a whole, um, a, a, a quite a flexible, forward-thinking corporate, um, or are they a slow-moving giant? Right. Uh, I would say it's more so, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a slow-moving giant by any means. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain pains, I think, in being a large organization, maybe just getting things approved in general. Yeah. But for us, because we're a subsidiary um, and our team is small, we pretty much act as our own unit. And there's less mm-hmm. players involved to actually get things decided. So uh, for us, we were very agile in the way that we move in the Southeast Asia team. But looking at the Japan team or just as the company as a whole, um, the company itself is very progressive. I think Saibozu is known to be one of the most progressive companies within Japan. Um, we also have a very high population of female workers, uh, I think maybe even like 50%, um, which is very rare in the tech community, um, especially in Japan as well. Um, so the core values and the organizational culture itself is very open and still very flat. So that allows us to be very agile while also having, also having like a good uh, work-life balance even, I would say at the same time. So it's not like cutthroat super startup culture. Yeah. Surprising. So it, it's, for me, working with Kinsel in Southeast Asia, I like it because it's the balance of, we have the startup flexibility and agile movement, mm. yet we don't have to worry about, you know, getting as much funding as possible from VCs, you know, trying to move as fast as possible, breaking breaking our backs, doing all that yeah. late type of thing. Yeah, well, that's that's really good to hear, and it's great to hear how progressive the, the organization is. In fact, we're um, I think we're like seventy five percent female at B Corp at this point, um, uh, which has been very interesting for me because uh, normally I've been in sales teams that have been predominantly men um, so it's a, it's an exciting change for me um, yeah so checklist if you you know what's um, what's your go-to-market checklist you're launching uh, you know a new market you're launching maybe a, a, a new feature coming out of the the Kintone platform do you have sort of a go-to that you you kind of run through that could kind of be a template for our listeners sure yeah uh this is something that i use a lot even in my own consulting work as well mm-hmm. um but when making a gtm strategy first and foremost you want to research and analyze the current situation so that means looking at your market customer data trends want to look at both qualitative and quantitative, but also perform secondary and primary research. So uh, looking at it in terms of the desktop research or just looking at it in terms of doing actual surveys or user hearings, getting to know your customers. Mm. And when you use those inputs, you also look into your current company situation relative to the market as well. Uh, what are your current resources or what are the gaps in your current resources in order to attack certain certain uh, markets or certain target customers. So uh, based on that, then you would define what is your target market and personas. 
And then third would be defining your positioning and messaging strategy. Where do you fit within the competition? And what kind of message do you want to essentially resonate with your target market and personas? Uh, fourth would be defining your KPIs and goals so that you know that you're making some sort of progress when you're doing the, the go-to-market strategy and implementing it. Number five, I would say also define and align based on what's known as the four Ps. So I'm sure most people know about this already, product, price, place, and promotion. But what I found is really important when you're planning this is not to just do it from a top-down perspective, but to work together with each stakeholder and your subject matter experts to make sure that those strategies and tactics are aligned and actually applicable and also possible within the restrictions of what your team might, may have. So uh, number, going into that, like number six would be, what is the team structure required to actually implement on that? And last would be really create a feedback loop. So like what I mentioned before, the PDCA cycle, constantly monitor that success and provide additional guidance to the rest of the team when needed. Um, I have seen sometimes my team kind of veering off away from what the initial GTM strategy might be, just saying, oh, let's do this other activity which is okay, but based on the policy and the strategy that we have, uh, maybe if we do it, we can try it out a little bit, yeah. but what's best for the strategy and where we want to focus the majority of resources are is really this core uh, strategy that we've decided and agreed upon mm -hmm. to implement at least within this time period. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's a lot for, for people to think about to, to take in here. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, doing it, you know, doing it right. You know, um, I think some people rush, uh, definitely. And you've got to, I like how you, um, said, uh, do your research, right. Primary and secondary, go and speak to your customers, go and speak to your prospect customers survey. Um, you know, if you're launching a new product, make sure that your, your clients actually need it by just asking them. Um, and yeah, really, really good insights, um, Vincent. And I think, uh, uh, Kintern, I mean, it's an exciting, it's an exciting product, like no code, low code. I think it's going to uh, change the way people think about buying software, certainly over the next five to 10 years where, um, traditionally, uh, you, you know, well, nowadays you just get an off the shelf SaaS product for pretty much anything you need. Um, but then you're kind of, that's it. You, you have to follow their processes. And I like that um, Kintone allows you to sort of customize however you wish exactly the way your business needs to operate by creating your own apps within exactly. minutes. Um, so it's an exciting opportunity. You've got a, a, a very wide market to approach. Um, I'm really excited to, to hear uh, what you've done so far and um, how it moves in the future. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking with me today. Um, if you were to say one thing to, to the audience or uh, leave any, any wisdom, uh, now's the time. Right. So, uh, yeah, again, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for having me on your podcast as well, Ben. But yeah. uh, just last, well, I guess really key takeaway to take from this is uh, always be improving. Yeah. So always think about the strategy that you have may not necessarily be the right strategy right away. Um, so just always be improving, be critical, 
constantly look for ways to improve. Mm -hmm. And as long as you have that mindset of constantly improving and not being married to a certain idea, then naturally you'll find success in your business and also your GTM strategy. Absolutely. I was literally talking about that two days ago. Um, you know, you're always got to adapt. You always got to change until you find the right system. I think the biggest thing that we found was training our team. I think it took us, it's taken us two years to get it right. You know, we finally figured it out. Um, so don't give up. Yeah. Never, never give up, never surrender. <laughs> never surrender. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you very much, Vincent. Um, this has been Honey Never Sleeps. Thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.